whether you're a male or female, anyone trying to make it in any business, I mean, you have to put in the work and the effort. And if you are a, a female or in an underrepresented uh, minority group trying to move your career forward, nobody's asking for a handout, right? We all want to be recognized for our talent and our expertise. We just would like maybe if the doors open, we're going to go through it if given the opportunity. But we still want to be known for our skill and, and not given anything just because of that. This is episode 13 with our physician guest, Uzuma Siddiqui from the University of Chicago. Indocast is a GI focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Siddiqui, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me today. I am super excited to chat with you, and I've got a bunch of clinical stuff and talking about uh, building your program, but before we do that, I thought it'd be fun to just get a little bit of your background. So I'd love to hear, why did you go into GI? I would say my number one motivator is my dad. He is a gastroenterologist and, you know, he trained in the 1970s when you had fiber optic scopes, no gloves, which... No. Uh, yes. Uh-uh. Yes. Mm -mm. Which I find, <laughs> I mean, that's uh, disgusting to me to think about it. Clearly, he's my idol. And so I thought, this is a great field to go into. And I thought I was good at endoscopy and I had validation from my mentor who I was working with that I could do it and my dad who said, yes, you can do it too. So. For me, I felt like I'm just going to pursue my dream, and I didn't think about women, men, or anything like that. Okay, that is really interesting because, I mean, it's such a male-dominated no, field. And now, when I think about it, when I back then we, you know, I was doing my in-person interviews, there was no match, and I was the only woman <laughs> at some of those interviews. But I don't know; it never really occurred to me, and I just, for me, I've always just thought, okay, what do I want to accomplish, and then just tried to do it. Yeah. I love that your dad made you believe you could do anything. I think the dads oh. are so important for daughters oh. on that. My dad made me believe I could do anything oh, too. See, yeah, no, it's, it's great. We've always had that support from our house. Way to go, Dr. Dad. Yeah. I, I like it. <laughs> and my family's Pakistani and everyone's a doctor, so I didn't have that much choice uh, on which uh, that I was going to be a doctor, but I knew I wanted to be a GI doctor from the beginning. When I was in GI fellowship, I had a mentor at NYU where I was training and my dad saying, hey, you know, there's all this new technology coming out. Perhaps advanced endoscopy would be a good area to go into. And then here we are now, 18 years later. Okay, that is so interesting. Yeah. That was 2001 when you went into your fellowship? Yes. What advanced stuff was coming out then? EUS first came around in the 1980s. And then at NYU, they had just gotten the EUS equipment and my mentor there was just learning it. To this day, he apologizes that he didn't know that much about the procedure at that time. But for me, it was just an example of seeing you know, new technology that I just read about. And now it was in my hospital and we were learning how to use it and how to implement it on a wider basis in our patient population. Okay, that is so interesting because I entered my territory in 2003 uh -huh. and a big conversion back then is if you could get them to switch from reusable forceps. So I'm oh, wow, yeah. Like, I'm just yeah. thinking we weren't talking about EUS back then. No, and I, even then we would, 
you know, put in esophageal stents and what looked like a closet. But now when I think about what I do today, I mean, it's just unbelievable to me how much things have changed. And even for my dad, you know, he went to fellowship in the 1970s. And for him, oh, what about these clips? Over the scope clips, through the scope, everything's new. And he always asked me a lot about a lot of questions on the new technology. So for me to be able to share that with different generations has been great. Yeah, that's super cool. Well, one thing that's really changed, maybe it hasn't changed enough, but when I started, I only had maybe, I don't know, two women GI doctors. And in 2016 is when I left my territory. And at that time I had one female interventionalist and then, I don't know, a couple other females. And so I know this is something that you're really passionate about and you've been involved with women in endoscopy. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe, why are there not more women in GI? Well, there's a lot of uh, women going into GI at the fellowship level. I think we're getting even close to 50% female fellows or getting closer to it every year. But then there's a lot of attrition once you start going into advanced endoscopy and senior leadership positions. And I think a lot of it is due to some preconceived notions on you know, the time commitment, the radiation exposure, the inability to have work-life balance if you want to have a family. I think the reason those ideas can persist, whether they're true or not, is because there's not other, there hasn't been other women to ask, hey, are these real things that occur or are these just perceptions that are not true and we can work around them? So I think for those of us who are in interventional now, the goal is to spread the message that you're not going to hurt your career by going into this area, but it gives you more options. So you can create the perfect job for yourself. So you think those are more myths? You think that you can have work-life balance? I mean, I'm not saying it. <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's completely untrue. But you know, anything worth having is going to take a lot of hard work and some sort of triaging in your own life and trying to find a balance. But I do think that you can come up with some kind of combination uh, of a schedule and a work environment that works for you. Okay, Dr. Sethi was telling me that the numbers in the last couple years have actually moved up a lot, almost doubled of women going into the fourth year fellowship. Yes, yes, I mean, but it started at like 14%, so now we're up to 28. So it's not perfect, but at least it shows us that some of these efforts are having, you know, some positive outcomes. And again, I think for the younger women, it's nice to see, you know, senior women in the field, on panels, doing podcasts, scoping at these live endoscopy courses. Again, if you see it, then you can do it. Yeah, how much do you think the women in endoscopy group has affected that number? Oh, I like to take credit for it 100%. completely, but, <laughs> but you know, we're not the only ones. So ASGE has a women's special interest group. There's WIGNAPs in Asia. There's different groups in Europe. So I think the message is loud and clear to the entire world of endoscopy that the more diverse your providers are, then the better care you can provide to patients, the better capture of ideas when you're talking about innovation and research and development for new devices, and everyone wins. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading a study about women in endoscopy and why the number's low, and it was t I hadn't thought about the fact that you've got some, you know, religious and cultural issues where they have to see a woman, and then some women just only want to see a woman, and, and that perhaps having more women would get more people scoped. We'd have not a deficit in the number of people that are getting their colonoscopies. Correct, yes. But the question is, if a woman has an interest in advanced endoscopy and she doesn't go into that area, why is that? Is it because 
they believe these myths? Is it because uh, perhaps male colleagues, you know, there wasn't an encouraging environment? Or is it because of their work-life balance? It's just, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but hopefully we can try to address some of those up front. And one of the things we had always, we had discussed with uh, Boston Scientific in the past, trying to target female fellows earlier on in their fellowship, like first and second year before they apply to the advanced endoscopy match. And a couple years ago, we set up an advanced endoscopy webinar series targeting junior fellows, and we had all female faculty. And I think, again, it just showed the world, hey, there are women that do all these procedures, and it covered a wide array of topics. Okay, so one thing that I noticed when I was looking at your CV is you've mentored a ton of people. So I would love to hear about the role of mentorship. People have mentored you and people you've gotten to mentor over the years. No, I think that plays a huge role, especially in trying to inspire the next generation of, of female endoscopists. You know, when I was coming up, I had Grace Elta Brenna Bounds, and that was pretty much it. Uh, so I two. think yes, two females, two yes, <laughs> and all of us coming up now would say the same two people. And every time you saw them at a meeting with all those guys fighting back and trying to hold their own, you were just so inspired. <laughs> so I think for myself and Dr. Sethi, and also the women involved with women in endoscopy, that's been one of the main goals is even if I'm not mentoring you one-on-one, -on -one, just the fact that you see us at meetings, you know, scoping and discussing our career paths, I think that's one form of kind of mentorship from afar. But then I do get a lot of, uh, again, requests for mentoring. Sometimes it's overwhelming because you can't mentor every woman in the country. <laughs> so, you know, you try, obviously, with the fellows that are close to you geographically and that you can meet with in person. And then there's also opportunities, whether it's on Zoom or at different national meetings, to try to just give that little tidbit or that piece of advice that you think could help them. But I think overall, the goal is just show people that it can be done by women and that women can scope, we can talk about endoscopy, and we definitely deserve to be on the same platform as the guys. All right, with that, let's transition to talk about some of those procedures. I know yes. we're here to talk about Axios today. So I wanna know, do you remember your very first Axios stent? I do, but I was trying to remember the year. I think it seems, <laughs> it seems like a lifetime ago because I've done so many of them since then. Uh, but I do remember initially seeing a product earlier prior to it being called Axios. But I definitely remember the first hot Axios that I did. I was very nervous about it at the beginning, but it was so easy. And I was actually surprised, you know, how well it went. Yeah, talk to me about that. So how were you feeling then versus, you know, how you feel now when you do one? Oh, there's always that little hint of, okay, I hope this deployed properly that you still have. But for the most part, I feel like you can perfect your technique over time and just from doing it so, so often that hopefully you minimize any misdeployments or if there is one, you know how to troubleshoot. But I think in that first one, we did that and I just, again, reviewing the technique and I recorded that first case, which I still show. And I think it still was less than 10 minutes and that was my first one. Wow, so, that's amazing. Yeah, it was, pre it was pretty quick, but you know, again, that goes to the device development. So I'm curious how your patient pathway has changed. I don't know if it's changed necessarily. I think, you know, I've been fortunate to work at two big institutions where we did see, say, a lot of pancreatitis patients, a lot of fluid collections, and they would get referred to our group. But I think in the past, 
your threshold to intervene maybe was a little higher because you knew the procedure may be a little bit more technically challenging if you're dealing with pigtails and dilating and extra steps and again training your staff. So a little bit more upfront investment versus with Axios because it's mainly kind of driven by the physician controlling the device. All right, so I want to talk to you about building your multidisciplinary program. What are maybe three things that you wish you had known when you were first building it that you know now? I mean, you know, again, the communication with the other stakeholders, uh, with interventional radiology, the surgeons. Sometimes at a big center, you're passive about it because you just assume patients are going to come. But <laughs> I think really just communicating with those other providers and making sure they know when you want to intervene and what ways you're going to intervene. I think that's really important. Again, you can talk to your hospital administration on the cost side of things in terms of perhaps if it's going to cost more, but we're going to improve patient outcomes, then that's a discussion that you can have up front. Let me think, what's the third thing now? <laughs> uh, if you only have two, we can just stick with two. Yeah, okay. I guess, again, just the education component for your team is just making sure because a lot of times when there's new devices or techniques, the docs decide, okay, we're bringing this to the unit. And your support staff maybe don't have as much input, but making sure that they know this is something new that's coming and upfront kind of teaching them the indications and how to use it. So, you know, obviously you want to get the word out that you have a new uh, procedure, technique, device available now to your patients. But I think it's key that you have made sure that you have educated yourself on how to use the new device, what are the proper indications, especially when you're launching a new program. For you to have a really bad outcome, you know, news is going to spread fast. And then those referrings are not going to keep sending you patients. So I think especially when you're launching a new program, you better be ready and prepared. So tell me how the appropriate patients are getting referred to you. How are they coming to you? Well, so usually if a patient Again, when we're talking about axios and pancreatic fluid collections, if a patient has significant pancreatitis, if there's even a hint of necrosis on a CAT scan, we're going to get a call, whether we're going to drain them or not. Um, so we'll get a call to evaluate the patient, and then depending on if they're symptomatic, we'll decide, you know, does this person warrant a drainage procedure or not, based on a number of factors. But it usually starts from that, that kind of imaging and clinical standpoint. Okay, and what are the factors you're using to decide if they need to be drained? So it would depend on how, you know, when was the inciting pancreatitis event? Are we less than four weeks out, more than four weeks out? Do we have a nice walled off collection? Uh, what are the contents of the collection? Is it mainly fluid? Is it mainly necrosis? Uh, do they have symptoms? You know, are, do they have early satiety, nausea, vomiting from gastric outlet obstruction? Do they have signs of infection? Because I think you know, sometimes we do get referrals where a patient feels amazing, but they scan them and they found that they still have a pseudocyst, and that doesn't necessarily mean we need to intervene. Okay. And you guys have a pancreas program, you mentioned. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, because again, we have, again, from years of kind of dealing with these types of uh, pancreatitis patients, and ours is a big referral center for patients to be sent from outside hospitals. So I think everything from nutrition, to collection, drainage, whether that's endoscopic, interventional radiology, or even video-assisted VARDs by the surgeons. You know, we try to come up with a comprehensive approach. But anything next to the upper GI tract that we can reach with an EUS scope, we are gonna drain if it needs it. Okay. Now, obviously, most patients will resolve without intervention. Yes. But what's kind of the most common treatment algorithm? 
say somebody had a really bad episode of pancreatitis, and actually this goes to knowing your indications, because I did have one case referred to me. Patient never had pancreatitis, but they had a collection that the outside doctor thought was perhaps Waldorf necrosis. They put an Axios in, and then it didn't resolve over three months. And then they called me and said, hey, you know, can you help me out with this case? And they sent it to me, and it was actually a sarcoma. Oh boy. That they had had a little pocket of fluid, but they put the Axios into it. And so for me, that was an example. If a patient has not had pancreatitis in the past four to six weeks, it is not an acute, you know, a fluid collection. It's not a pseudocyst, it's not Waldorf necrosis. You have to think about something else. So I always stress that in any talk I give on this topic, you better know that they had the pancreatitis and now this is what you're gonna be attempting to treat. But say someone had pancreatitis four to six weeks ago, now they come in with belly pain, nausea, vomiting, they get a CAT scan, there's an eight centimeter, presumably a pseudocyst next to the stomach. Uh, they're gonna call us and we're gonna be first line therapy for sure with an Axios. Okay, all right, so my, my final question, although, okay. although the data would show that, you know, in terms of outcomes, you could potentially do pigtails when it's just fluid and get similar outcomes. But again, if you take into account the efficiency with which you can do the procedure and the decreased number of device exchanges that potentially you feel more comfortable and you can get a good result with kind of a quick procedure. Okay, that actually segues into my last question because you're now the head of the department. As you're looking to establish a program, do you have a different perspective on the cost benefit now as the, as the head? You know, cost definitely comes into play somewhat, especially when you have these value analysis committees and everyone, you know, is a little bit short on money in this post-COVID or current COVID status. So we do look at those things, but the most important thing is gonna be patient outcomes. So at my hospital, if I say, for me and my staff doing this type of procedure with this device gives us our best chance at a good outcome for our patient, then they're gonna support that. Obviously, you know, that's something that we continuously assess and perhaps you know, our practice may evolve over time, which is, I think, a great advantage of therapeutic endoscopy. Uh, we're doing so many new things that sometimes after we've done something for a while, the techniques definitely change over time. So I think as long as my hospital is aware that I'm looking at these things and the patients are still getting a good outcome, they support us. Okay, I love that. So even on that example with the double, double pigtail, which would be a cheaper way to do it, mm -hmm you feel strongly that you should use Axios there. I don't know if I use the word strongly. That's what you prefer to use. That is, That has been what I, I have preferred to use, especially in the last couple years. I will say from a, a teaching standpoint, because we have an advanced fellow every year, it is something for me that's a little bit easier to teach them because they're set steps and it's a very efficient procedure. Whether that's gonna harm them long-term because you know, there are some times for different types of collections where you are gonna still need to do pigtails and use those techniques with dilation and device exchange. But again, I think Axios has kind of gained widespread use throughout the entire country. So especially when I have advanced fellows, they wanna know and learn how to use it properly. Yeah. Yes, when you're talking about just fluid and a pseudocyst, whether you use double pigtail versus Axios, perhaps you'll have similar outcomes. There was some data that suggested you might have increased risk of bleeding with the Axios, so that kind of led to the 
practice where we pull these out a little sooner, like three to four weeks versus double pigtails, you might leave in longer. Now in the past, the original indication for Axios were for collections that are less than 30% necrosis, but now that limit is gonna be removed. And what size are you using for those? I usually do 15 or 20. For the most part, 15 is kind of my go-to. Uh, sometimes the 20 to me a little bit stiffer deploying it, but uh, those are the two because I want to make sure I can get a therapeutic scope through it. Dr. Siddiqui, I'm just curious if you have any final thoughts for us. I guess one f final message if we want to end on, whether you're a male or female, anyone trying to make it in any business, I mean, you have to put in the work and the effort. and. If you are a female or in an underrepresented uh, minority group trying to move your career forward, nobody's asking for a handout, right? We all want to be recognized for our talent and our expertise. We just would like maybe if the doors open, we're going to go through it if given the opportunity. But we still want to be known for our skill and, and not given anything just because of that. Oh. That is a great way for us to close this out. Thank you so much, Dr. Siddiqui. This has been awesome. No, I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Indocast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.